to help settle our mind a little, let's do a 10-minute sit. Again, since we're spending a lot of time in discussion and reflection, I would use this time to settle your attention, settle your awareness into simply receiving sound, simply receiving the breath and body sensations. allowing for spaciousness and relaxation to uh, both ground yourself and open your capacity to receive more reflection, to not feel crowded or overwhelmed (coughs) to take a few minutes to connect to hearing or body sensations or breath.
So this afternoon session will be on right view, or in the Pali is samaditi. And I think we've mentioned it a few times uh, about how to use or how to translate the word sama, and that we are translating it often as right. And I find <clears throat> calling things right view um, gets a little bit uh, tricky because we can instantly have other opinions and find ourselves in a clash of opinions and a clash of understandings and trying to assert that one is right or the other gets uh, tricky. And so one of the ways that I reflect upon that is that you often don't see <clears throat> the word sama, the word right, come up uh, unless it's in terms of the Eightfold Path. And the Eightfold Path is the fourth noble truth. So in some ways, right view, as it's going to be described here, comes out of the system of the four noble truths. And so one way that samaditi, right view, is a right view, is that it is the view that is born out of the understanding of the four noble truths. And so it gets its uh, rightness or its wiseness, its usefulness in that context. It also defines what we're going to be exploring, what types of views we're interested in. Um, I'm actually quite good at baking sourdough bread, <clears throat> and I have views and opinions about how to do that. That doesn't directly relate much to dukkha, unless I don't do it well. <laughs> um, so that knowledge, that understanding, uh, is not quite that pertinent to the Four Noble Truths. And so we could have um, discussions about that, the baking of bread, and how to do it, your opinions, my opinions. But that seems to be uh, one step out of our concern of dukkha and the end of dukkha. So what ends up being samaditi, what ends up being right or wise view, is what helps us uh, frame and understand what we need to frame and understand in terms of understanding dukkha, its cause, uh, its end, and how to uh, bring about the end of dukkha. And so that's really the, uh, the basis of which we're going to be exploring what these views or understandings uh, are and, and um, how they're useful. And I, I'm glad to say you are comfortable asking questions as we go. So if anything happens along the way and you have a brief question, um, please raise your hand and um, we can uh, add that to the discussion of the afternoon. So uh, the Buddha often said that um, all beings are uh, seeking happiness, but through not quite understanding where happiness comes from uh, and where suffering comes from, even though they're trying their best, they make choices that uh, don't support their greatest happiness and that actually set them up for frustration and disappointment. Um, and so... Uh, 
not getting not not getting this understanding as deeply as we need to we'll find ourselves in patterns that lead to dukkha that actually foster the arising of direct unpleasant experiences or the sort of wandering dissatisfaction that we're still seeking some type of understanding that will help us um, not keep falling into this pitfall of disappointment or frustration or actual pain and sorrow. So right view is something that we, um, we develop and we cultivate. And as we clarify our view, we can see things more clearly. We can interact with the world um, with more awareness. And that actually helps us learn more. And that learning from direct experience improves our view. As our view improves, then so does our interaction with the world. And it's sort of a, it's a dawning, it's a growing of an understanding that might start intellectually. And then it begins to sort of permeate our mind. It permeates our understanding. It permeates um, how and why we get up in the morning and what we do with our day and how we fall asleep, this view um, ends up becoming more and more of how we are uh, understanding the world we're in, how we understand our activities and our motivations. So it's a gradual cultivation that is um, strengthened by direct experience, not just on reflection and not just on reading, which as Sally said, is why um, mindfulness is so important is that it's, we don't just sit around uh, reflecting on what might be true and what might, might not be true. You actually begin looking at your direct experience and learning from direct experience. And that does seem to be um, core to what the Buddha asked people to do. And it's not so reflected in uh, the core teachings and core activities of other spiritual or philosophical traditions. This... Uh, deep dropping in and learning from your direct experience. Um, So, um, earlier in my life, um, I was trained as a physicist and um, my mother and stepfather were scientists and so there was a lot of science um, at the dinner table and I met their friends and was raised to be a rigorous scientist. And in, <clears throat> in the community of science, there's this um, very strong uh, ethos of trusting the data more than the theories. And so you're trying to understand the world. You're trying to kind of test and see how the world works. And it's very exciting when you, when um, it's almost like the, the ego pride of a scientist if you can actually generate a view that overthrows previous views and seems to be more accurate. And so it's one of the, um, one of the things that's very exciting in the field of science is seeing if you can actually do better than the generation before by asking questions, building upon what they understood, but actually refining those understandings so that as you are constructing your views and opinions, they accord and they relate and they, um, they are in alignment with reality and how reality works. So it's, um, it's a part of the, um, the passion and the guidelines uh, of the scientific community. And so 
in the world of physics, there's this, um, there's this analogy I want to offer you about what it's like to develop uh, a wise view and kind of um, let go of a previous view and the impact that that has on your understanding and how that impact uh, affects how you organize yourself. And so in the, um, the 16th century, um, there was, uh, actually well before the 16th century and to this current day, there's, um, there are a lot of people who believe in astrology. And <clears throat> it's very important to understand how the stars move because it helps you predict what's going to happen when and help you understand if something's not working well for you now, why is that? And so people, through their study, um, they seem to have drawn a correlation that when the planet Mercury moves through the sky and then for a moment seems to go backwards and then recovers and moves forward again in its normal trajectory, that period of going backwards, it seems that many people experience poor communication, frustrating communication. People that they usually get along with, there's this consternation, things are not working well. And so that's one of the things that um, you could have the profession of studying the stars and trying to predict when that's going to happen so you wouldn't do your most important business or that time, or you wouldn't try to get married during that time. Um, you wouldn't want your child to be born during that time because that would sort of cast a whole um, pattern over that child of how they'd be able to communicate through life. So understanding the stars and how they move is very important. But no one could model it they were trying very hard to figure out how to model and predict this. And what people didn't realize is that they had an underlying view and opinion that they had never thought to challenge, which the underlying view and opinion was the earth was flat, the planets went around the earth, and the sun went around the earth. So these very uh, brilliant mathematicians tried to come up with models of how that system could work, not knowing that their underlying assumption was uh, inaccurate. So <clears throat> no matter how hard they tried, and they got very brilliant about trying to figure out how circles within circles could um, track these planets. But uh, no, one got, no one could really capture it with any type of strong um, predictability. And then uh, Copernicus comes along, <clears throat> and he, model, he gives a model that mathematically predicts the planets, how they're going to move. But it's actually when Galileo comes and he has a telescope and he improves the telescope and he starts looking at the planets and he sees things that no one has ever seen before. He's looked more closely. And it's from his direct evidence that you have the Copernican mathematical models, suddenly they're actually describing truth. So it goes from theory down into actually, this is how it's actually organized. The sun's in the center and the planets go around the, the sun and our moon goes around our planet. And with that understanding, you can actually then predict the planets for thousands of years. You know exactly where they're gonna be. <clears throat> and so with that shift in paradigm, suddenly there's a tremendous amount of clarity about how things actually work but when you have an underlying assumption that you don't even know you're assuming, it, it's very complicated to try to figure out how to, how to move forward, especially in areas that are important to you. And so 
with that shifting in our understanding, the universe didn't change. It had always been operating that way. But people could come in alignment with the way things were. And then that, if you're willing to step into that new understanding, there's less confusion about um, how things are unfolding. And so this is what the Buddha is offering us with right view. That we have common understanding from growing up. If you didn't have the Buddha's view, you would look at the world and you try to understand it. And you would do the best you could to develop wisdom about how to live a life. And yet some of the underlying assumptions that um, would be very common uh, ended up not being true. And so that's why there's the basis of frustration. We didn't know to question certain things that seemed so self-evident, we wouldn't even know how to begin to question them. And so when we talk about right view in terms of suffering, um, some degree of suffering could be known by anybody. So if you uh, grab a hot pan and it hurts, don't do that. So that's, that's kind of common. Everybody would sort of have that after age five or six. If there's something hot, you know it's painful. <clears throat> but there are deeper understandings and there are deeper misunderstandings um, that uh, people were not accessing. And so this is what the Buddha pulls out as right view in relationship to dukkha. So, as I said the other day, um, all of the Buddha's teachings are encompassed by the Four Noble Truths. It's the elephant's footprint that uh, every other truth uh, falls within that footprint. There's nothing outside the Four Noble Truths that's important to understanding dukkha, that um, suffering and its end are encapsulated in the Four Noble Truths. And as you spend time knowing each of the Four Noble Truths, you deepen your understanding and some of its uh, conceptual understanding of each of the Noble Truths, what is Dukkha, and you deepen your understanding of that. And then you begin to experience Dukkha and begin to see, oh, I understand the theory, but now I understand the experience of it. I understand that no matter what, I cannot make uh, happy experiences last, that they come and they go. So enjoy them while they're here, but they can't last. I cannot prevent unpleasant experiences from arising. They come, they go, and that's a, somewhat out of my control. And then if you can uh, perfect your relationship to the world, to the unfolding of experience, then no experience can throw you into the confusion and frustration. That it just, that's how things are. I, I don't get upset that the moon goes around the earth in 28 days. It kind of, it doesn't throw me anymore. <laughs> That's just the way it is. I'm not thrown anymore by unpleasant experiences. I'm not overly delighted by pleasant experiences as if I have finally arrived somewhere that I get to wipe my brow and say, ah, oh, boy, that first 44 years of my life was tough. But now that I have this perfect latte, I got it made. <laughs> it's also clear, why would I ever think otherwise? I have things understood. Or when my family uh, is, is rising and falling and who's doing well, and all of a sudden we all seem to be doing well at once. And we dab our brow like, wow, that was 
that was a tough ride. We have some challenges in our family, but we've all arrived at a place where it's clear now. We'll just treat each other well and move forward from here. And then to see something happen, somebody gets upset, somebody gets triggered, and then all of a sudden, two people are going up and down again, and then we all kind of fall into it, and we all say, wow, we had it. Why did we lose it? And even on larger scales, it's, it's, quite, it's quite amazing to me that we still go to war. It's quite amazing to me if you look at all the previous wars and what actually happened, that it still occurs to people that that's a good way to move forward. On the small level, <clears throat> no pleasure you've ever had has lasted. And if you look at your excitement about the next possibility, we overshoot. Even though we have years of experience of overshooting, we still don't seem to uh, stop the habit of overshooting what we expect is possible from pleasant experiences. And we still don't seem to plan in unpleasant experiences. I was... Um, Last fall I was planning this spring and all the things I was doing and I planned it well and I didn't plan on getting bronchitis. It just didn't occur to me that that was a possibility even though I've had bronchitis before in my life. And then when it did happen, I was somewhat thrown by it and I adapted but my, my plan didn't account for the fact that I would, I would get sick. And yet that's not a foreign experience to me. So... <clears throat> Even though we have a lot of experience, somehow we don't seem to, to learn from it. That, that translation of our direct experience into our wisdom seems to be slow. And one of the reasons it's slow is that we actually have underlying assumptions that are not accurate. And so this is what the, uh, the Buddha is offering in terms of right view. And as that right view begins to deepen in us, we find that we're not as thrown by how life unfolds. It, it all kind of makes sense. Even the going to war. It's not that it's right, but it makes sense. Like, yeah, of course, if you had these people in charge and these are the circumstances, war is probably going to happen. That's probably what will happen in these circumstances. Does that make sense? And it's just surprising that we don't learn from it, that people have underlying assumptions that... Um, will allow them to get uh, caught in the same trap over and over and over. And <clears throat> it's funny to watch it in myself. I'm not um, immune to this. I, I call it the, the one potato chip lie. That <laughs> I still think it's possible to open an entire bag of potato chips, <laughs> pull out one, eat it, and then maybe have one a day as, as I delight. And that would take all the joy that was uh, in that bag, spread it out and maximize my joy. Because the second one often doesn't taste as good as the first, so why not have one a day or one an hour? Just spread it out. And then I would be actually using wisdom to maximize the joy. And I don't do that. <clears throat> I think I can do that. Every bag I open, if I'm opening it with that premise, there's the one potato chip law. And <laughs> I fall for it almost every time that the many potato chips are eaten. There's sort of a gross feeling afterwards. More vows to only have one the next time, as if that vow was ever going to uh, counter the delusion <laughs> that when faced with a fresh bag of potato chips, I'll have more than one. 
And then wisdom comes like, yeah, if I open the bag, chances are it's not going to go as planned. If my plan still believes I can conquer the second potato chip. So I mean, that's a light version, but that's the, that's the small end of how the pattern plays out. Again, I'm 44 years old. I've been around the sun 44 times. And there are some, uh, some wisdoms are, are slow to actually sink in, even though there's tons of experience. And so for thousands of years, people were watching the planets much more than we are in our modern life with our streetlights. We often don't have the same relationship to the planets in the night sky. But for thousands of years, people were watching the night sky. And there was a lot of evidence, but we just had this underlying assumption from common experience that the earth just doesn't seem to move and the sun is what seems to move. And the moon seems to move and the planets seem to move. So, you know, they're the ones moving. It's just perplexing to us how and why they move. So when we come into the Four Noble Truths, each one of those Noble Truths can be known uh, more deeply, more refined. You start to have life experience and seeing how intricate each of those truths are, uh, how pervasive they are, and how interrelated they are. And so that's sort of the deepening of the understanding and deepening into direct experience. I didn't start out to... Um, do as much practice as I've ended up doing. So I started, it was interesting, and it was a little more interesting, and did a little more, did a little more. I remember my first teacher said, he also didn't plan on becoming a teacher, but just over the months and years, he was more interested in books on Buddhism, more interested in talking to people who had experience. His friends were more likely to have done some practice of some sort. And then there's this gradual shifting into his life you know, just now saturated with his interest and understanding around the awakening process. And so to hit some of the, um, the top um, categories of what might be right views in Buddhism, again, we start with the Four Noble Truths as the, the greatest framing the, the broadest framing of what the Buddha taught. And the Four Noble Truths, almost all major Buddhist traditions um, still see their teaching and practices as coming out of the Four Noble Truths. So it's common to all the countries that practice Buddhism. In the Four Noble Truths, we have the Eightfold Path as the fourth noble truth. So understanding that, the practices that come from that, the wisdom around the precepts, um, how to hold the precepts in all these different contexts you find yourself in. What is mindfulness, as Sally was sharing earlier, that's held differently by different uh, schools of Buddhism. But they're coming in and they're, that's how they've experienced mindfulness, that's how they've developed it. They've found a way to language it and practice it and understand it in their culture, in their time. They're still mapping that understanding from direct experience. But the way their minds have framed it and understood it and put language to it might be different from one monastery to the next. But they're still, they're still looking through the same telescope at the same stars and planets, but how they language that, what they call those stars might be different from one to the other, but they're all looking at the same reality. 
They're all looking at suffering, its causes, what un- untangles it, and how to do that. The second noble truth gets deeply refined in this teaching on dependent origination, paticca samuppada, and that's what we're going to go through in this afternoon uh, carefully to make sure the pieces of it land for you. But that's a great teaching on trying to see the underlying mechanisms that go from this misunderstanding that causes us to crave and that sets us up for dukkha. And there was a question uh, earlier, which is the true source of dukkha? Is it craving or is it misunderstanding? And dependent origination um, is that mapping of how misunderstanding sets us up for craving and clinging. And that sets us up for suffering. We've mentioned a few times, I think all of us, this category of the three characteristics this is also drawn out of really understanding um, the first noble truth and then parts of the other noble truths. So you have uh, deeply seeing into anicca, deeply seeing into impermanence. Understanding how impermanence is uh, one of the great sources of our frustration and why we become frustrated with our experiences of life. And the third characteristic is uh, ripening our understanding of uh, who we are and uh, how we conceive of ourselves and how we understand ourselves. And that for the most part, we are um, probably getting too rigid and too tight in how we perceive of ourselves and how we're trying to become uh, somebody better. And we get caught in that net and that relaxing that process and holding yourself with more wisdom that there isn't really uh, a core being here. There isn't really a, a solid lasting temple that's having all this experience, but I'm an ongoing changing process. And if I come in to know myself well, I can see that change is happening on every level, but there's a, there's a pattern that we call temple but that pattern shifts over time. The part of temple that is this body is slowly shifting over time. The part of temple that is the mind is shifting over time. The part of temple that is the emotional uh, realm of my life is changing over time. There's nothing static in there. So those are the three characteristics and it's worthy of its own afternoon. It's worthy of its own understanding to deepen your um, connection to that framing to that uh, understanding that all experiences, all constructed experiences um, go through a changing process and that can set us up for disappointment and frustration. And in that there's nothing static, not even the one who's having the experience. As you read in Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, the law of karma is also in this realm of right view. That karma is one of the mechanisms of how um, living beings, uh, how their lives unfold. That there is this law of cause and effect. And it's in the realm of our our moral actions. 
and the intentions behind the action. That just as there is gravity and just as there is electricity and magnetism, these uh, physical laws, there is something else, there's a mechanism in the universe um, that, uh, that operates and it's called karma, the law of cause and effect. And we'll, we'll talk about that some. What I want to focus on is this um, other, other aspect. So I hope this isn't um, already way too many right views, way too many views. And that can happen sometimes where you're suddenly um, uh, being shown chemistry, biology, and physics, and astrophysics, and it's, just, it's like way too many. But these really all are refinements out of the Four Noble Truths, taking any one of the truths and seeing how they relate. So all of these are just that, uh, that refinement. So if it ever seems too complex, you're, you're just getting into the, the fine-tuning of our understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Sometimes our minds are clear. We've had a little tea and we're not too close to a big meal. We can go into these, these understandings and see more detail. And other times we get a little foggy or a little sleepy and it's just nice to have a simpler truth. Dukkha and the end of Dukkha. <laughs> okay, I got, that, that's about the ballpark of what I can hold. So this is all too complex. I want to go into the sense of um, the law of cause and effect and the, uh, the law of conditioned experience, the laws that govern conditioned experience. So before I do that, <clears throat> I would like us to take a few uh, deep breaths and make sure that we're actually feeling this uh, body below us, this body that we are living within. Because even this conversation is a moment on your path. And wisdom uh, will teach us over time that to disconnect from our physicality doesn't play out well over time. And so we wouldn't really be following our own wisdom to spend this so many minutes, so many hours up in the realm of thought and concept and lose contact with the basis of our being, this uh, physical body. So that's common when we get into some of these um, refined uh, intellectual understandings. There can be, the balloon can float up out of the body and it's kind of fun, but then after a while, it's, it's hard to sustain. So <clears throat> there's a word um, in Pali, it's called Sankara. And the san, the S-A-N of sankara, means uh, together. And it's also the same root of the word sangha, which means community. So san of sankara means together. And kara is close to the word kama, which is sort of uh, an action. So it's acting together or coming together. And sankaras are things that are constructed. Sankaras are things that are put together. So there's some energy required, different pieces uh, are taken and they're put together and that creates a new thing. So all the wood in this building at one point uh, were living trees. 
they were cut down, turned into boards, gathered here, and this room was constructed, the paint, the uh, whatever the wall boarding is, the lights. This room is constructed. So <clears throat> this room is, you could say, a sankara. It's a something that was constructed. Constructed things, sankaras, have a beginning. And due to anicca, which is one of the the uh, characteristics of sankaras, is that it goes through an aging process. It has a beginning, it goes through an aging process, and it eventually falls apart, unless new things are added into it, giving it sort of a new birth, a new starting point. This room comes together, it's constructed, goes through an aging process, and then eventually falls apart. <clears throat> it falls apart when the underlying conditions that allow it to be stable begin to fall apart. So the aging of the wood makes the wood lose its uh, firmness and then the wood begins to fall apart. <clears throat> the aging of the paint begins to have the paint fall apart. The aging of the metal, the shifting of the ground below the building causes the sankara of this building to go through an aging process and to eventually falling apart. And you can see that with any ancient building that was constructed. And it's usually not looking as good as it did when it was first constructed. Like the pyramids, for example. They're very impressive, but they've had better days. <clears throat> or maybe they're so beautiful in their aging process that for a minute we can appreciate them. That they've been here so long, but they've definitely gone through a a constructed phase, an aging phase, and then they're, you know, they're slowly falling apart. All of experience that you'll have, um, nearly all experience, is constructed. It's the conditions, it's the underlying conditions coming together to make an event happen. And then when the underlying um, support of that event fades, so does the event itself. This retreat, it has uh, the support of everybody coming here, everybody agreeing to be here. And at some point the agreement is over and we all go home. So this retreat is a sankara. Most of your experiences, most of the things you'll be in contact with are sankaras. They're constructed events. Your body is a sankara. It had a birth, it has an aging process. It came together. And when the underlying mechanisms that support it being begin to fade and fall apart, so does the body. It also falls apart. There is one thing uh, that does not um, fall apart. And it's the word, um, it has a word, it has a name. It's called Nibbana. Nibbana is not constructed. It's the one thing in the universe that's not constructed. It doesn't have a beginning and therefore, because it doesn't have a beginning and it's not constructed, it doesn't fall apart. Unfortunately, to, um, this afternoon is not quite long enough to go into much more detail about Nibbana. <clears throat> but I'm going to put it out there because um, we can talk about all of experience being affected by Nietzsche. And for the most part, that will be true for us. Yet you can practice to the point where your mind does encounter this uh, Nibbana and you begin to experience for the first time something that doesn't fall apart. 
most of our experience before and after that contact with Nibbana is in the realm of things that begin, age, and fall apart. Begin, age, and fall apart. Either very quickly, like a breath, begins, ages, and falls apart. We don't just breathe in. Um, Our bodies are like that. Our houses are like that. Our relationships are like that. The very world we're in has a beginning. It has a middle and it has an end. So most of our experiences are actually in the realm of uh, conditioned experience. And uh, they're going through a changing process, arising, being, and falling apart. Any uh, questions about that? Okay. So <clears throat> I wanted to start there um, because the uh, when we go into dependent origination, it's basically a detailed look at <clears throat> a chain reaction that happens in the realm of constructed experiences. And it's looking at a type of, um, again, sort of chain reaction, a cause and effect relationship where um, the arising of one thing is the supportive cause for the arising of the second thing. And the arising of the third thing comes out of the arising of the second thing. So this is the law of cause and effect, looking at the relationship between uh, misunderstanding, craving, and uh, the suffering of dukkha. So we're going to be looking at that, um, that chain reaction. So if a, a few people could help me pass these out. So if I can just get a couple people, it'll go quick. Before we go into this um, uh, teachings of dependent origination or dependent arising, it has a couple of different names. The Pali is Paticca Samuppada. I want to bring your attention back to the analogy of the dart, the two darts. And in that sutta, the Buddha said the untaught worldling, so people who um, haven't been shown right view, will respond to unpleasant experiences by uh, retracting from them, resenting them, trying to avoid them. And that sets up a tendency to crave pleasant experiences as the only escape, the only sure um, relief from unpleasant experiences is to chase after pleasant experiences. So people who don't have um, right view, uh, right experience to see through that understanding will be caught in 
the process of craving pleasant experiences out of um, having quite unpleasant experiences and not knowing how to deal with them. And from that, when they come to neutral experiences, they won't find much use for them because they might be a, a temporary break from unpleasant experiences, but they're not as secure as having pleasant experiences. So in that teaching, it's a simpler teaching, but it, it uh, dependent origination is a more detailed explanation of that same sutta we explored in the, the two darts. <clears throat> so Paticca Samuppada, dependent arising, dependent origination, there's a reflection that is repeated in it, and that's the quote under the title there. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the ceasing of this, that ceases. And so this is the reflection that sort of underlines um, the link between these 12 uh, aspects of these 12 patterns of the mind. And I want to link that to what we were just saying about sankharas, that out of one set of circumstances coming together, that's the support of something else to arise out of that. And that becomes the support for something else to arise out of that. So when this comes to be, that is the support for the second thing to come to be. The second thing grows out of the experience of the first. If you remove the first, the second cannot arise. So you take, uh, it's now spring, many people might have been gardening or might be aware of gardening. You have uh, soil, seeds, sunshine, and rain or water. You combine those in the right ingredients and that germinates a seed. The, the seed begins to grow under those conditions. If you remove the water, the seed doesn't germinate. If you remove the heat, the seed doesn't germinate. If you remove the seed, the seed doesn't germinate. <clears throat> and if there isn't soil, the seed may germinate, but it can't grow. It actually needs to draw nutrition from the earth and from the air. If you remove air, also that seed cannot flourish. And so those are the, the, the prerequisites for growing something is that you have these underlying conditions. And when you remove any one of them, it's uh, nearly impossible and then finally impossible for the second thing to occur. So <clears throat> in this, um, we're going to show the relationship between uh, 12 links. It's like having 12 dominoes. If you push, push the first, it knocks the second, that knocks the third, knocks the fourth all the way down and knocks the 12th. The first one is this word avijja, and I've translated that as non-insight. It's usually common um, translated as ignorance, but for how I want to um, go through this, I'm going to have a slight change on that to non-insight. <clears throat> way down, you have the word tana um, in the second, in the, sorry, the last third, uh, craving. And then down at the very bottom, we have Jaramarna, and that's the aging death part. And that's usually where the greatest sorrow comes from, is losing con contact with something that you were preferring. 
something that you loved, either it's yourself or something else, goes through a fading process and a falling apart process. And if you were relying upon it, it's disorienting, it's, uh, there's grief there, there's sadness in the loss. So this is the links we're going to be exploring, these 12 uh, dominoes falling upon each other. When one thing arises, it supports the arising of the next. So again, uh, we'll just go through it and then we'll come back to this word in uh, avijja. So with the arising of avijja, uh, ignorance or non-insight, non-understanding, that's the supportive cause for sankharas to arise. And the sankharas are the habits and patterns of your mind. The, it's often said, your mind, your speech, and your body are your sankharas. And for this, it's a little easier just to think about them in terms of mental and emotional patterns. So with misunderstanding, your mind develops these, uh, these very deep patterns of how it regulates itself, how it responds to the world. Deep patterns um, arise out of misunderstanding. Out of those misunderstandings, that frames your ability to be aware, your, your, how your awareness begins to organize itself. And so you might say out of an understanding that we want to bring the Dharma here to Northern California, we have built Spirit Rock and we've built this room. Now that this room is built, we don't think about it so much, we use it, but it's kind of, it's the basis, it's the background. But this background room is supporting our ability to be here on a hot day or a cold day, a rainy day. This room is very helpful. We don't reflect upon it so much. It's beautiful, but we kind of let it be the backdrop. The views we have and these underlying sankharas tend to be the unexplored, uninvestigated backdrop. And then that shapes how we end up being conscious of the world. So the shape of this room affects how we use it. We tried to plan it well. Actually, that wasn't in it, so the we is greater than that. But we shape the room, and that influences how we organize ourselves. You all face this way, I face that way. We have an altar behind us. And that's shaping how we use the room. So these sankharas shape uh, how we use the space within. Consciousness how, and awareness, how it's being used, is shaped by the underlying patterns. These underlying patterns might be anger, they might be faith, they might be joy, they might be the pattern of mindfulness, they might be the pattern of confusion. Because we're starting with avijja, most likely the underlying patterns are somewhat confused, somewhat um, uh, innervated with uh, greed or craving or longing for what you don't have. There's probably some fear and aversion from things that you have found unpleasant. So these sankharas that grow out of misunderstanding um, tend to be less helpful. And they're as unhelpful as the uh, misunderstanding they're growing out of. They then shape <clears throat> how your, uh, your conscious life is organized. Out of how your conscious realm, your, the realm of your awareness is shaped, <clears throat> Then there's another realm of, of self-organization. 
And so you self-organize into what is the mentality, what are the patterns of mentality, and what are the patterns of physicality. There's your personal physicality of your body, and there's the physicality of the world around you. So once uh, consciousness begins to take shape, that's the support for this next level of engagement where what is the mental realm, the emotional and conscious and psychological realm of you, how is that relating to the physical realm? And it can, again, be your, your physical body or it can be the physical world around you. That then takes the next step of organizing, which is into um, putting attention to and beginning to explore the world through the six senses. Six senses being the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the field of the body itself, and then all the things that we can be aware of in the mind, all the objects of the mind, which is often thought, but it's also the realm of emotion itself, um, states of consciousness, states of mind, whether you're focused attention or distracted. All these can be known through that sixth sense door, that intimacy with the mind itself. Just stopping there for a moment and looking at the next column just to the right of it, we have avijja and sankaras being sort of a a deeper organizing of ourselves. So it's a, a previous conditioning from lots of experience. We've developed views and opinions and we've developed uh, emotional patterns and mental patterns in relationship to those experiences. That shapes how we then organize ourselves, develop ourselves to interact with the immediate world. So the vijnana, namarupa, and salayatana of consciousness, mentality, materiality, the six senses, that's a little bit more how we're um, coming into the flow of present time experience. So you can track this in meditation as you get to know your mind better. You can see these or, these, um, your mind organizing this way. It's having contact with the world through a particular sense door, there are certain emotions present, certain mental states present. Your ability to know that with clarity or not is sort of the, the taste of, of your awareness and how your awareness is being um, generated in that moment. Any questions so far? We're just trying to do our first walkthrough. If this is at all baffling, uh, don't worry. It's baffling usually about the first seven times you go through. <laughs> And then little bits of it begin to kind of dawn, intuitions grow. This is one of the more complex um, teachings in Theravada. So if you uh, don't, don't feel discouraged if this is not intuitive or if uh, already your head's swimming. But yeah, you have a question. It's more like a process than a content question. Yeah. It is being taped. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And there are, there are things that are very well written about this. And there are many people who have taught in English around this. And it's good to hear it sometimes from many different points of view because different people will frame it in a way that 
will help different parts of it land. So I'm, I'm, I want to go through this once, just so we see it once, and then we're going to go through a little slower and kind of see the relationships um, and just talk more about this process. But just to kind of, I want you to get a taste of these 12 links, these 12 dominoes, and how, just even to get the first pass by to see how one might relate to the next. Walking through these first five is the least intuitive part of this. In our daily existence, most people who haven't practiced mindfulness or most people who don't have a natural inclination to watching their minds are pretty unaware of these um, first five. You might know that you're angry when you're angry and that would be pretty good for real-time living. But being aware of your awareness itself out in daily life or which sense door you happen to be attending to because the mind goes so quickly between them. This part is fairly opaque to a lot of people, these first five. So if this part has not been intuitive, um, uh, that's one of the understandings is that this actually takes some time to get to know your mind well enough to see these in operation. But you can, it's it's doable. Uh, People who have spent the time and can see their minds working in this way The next, the next chain is um, much more intuitive. And so often when the Buddha was talking to people, he would start around here, around the midpoint, because it's more, um, you can get into this realm of your own experience. It's much more um, common. So you see the Buddha starting around here, around contact, and um, talking people through who hadn't had a lot of experience. But since, in his view, uh, misunderstanding is the root of it, you have to eventually work your way back through your mind to find these underlying sankharas, these underlying uh, beliefs and assumptions that you don't even know you're making. But most people wouldn't even know where to look. Like, where would you look into your mind to find your ability to understand English? Like, point to it. Like, well, it's happening. It's probably happening in here, but I, I can't find it, it just does it. So knowing your mind for a lot of people is not, it's not immediately available, but when you sit often in mindfulness with a little bit of investigation and tranquility, you can see these things happening. And then it becomes, uh, this. these first five links become much more um, uh, witnessable and you can see them in motion. But through your six sense doors, you have contact with your immediate surroundings. You've contact of sight and sound, you've contact uh, through your body, you've contact of um, uh, odors, you've contact of tastes, you've contact with your emotions, you've contact with your thought. <clears throat> so all experiences you're having in the present moment are happening through one of these six sense doors. So I call this a sense object experience. It's not so much that you're exploring your mind, although that's one of the places you can begin to explore, but we usually start with becoming mindful of the five senses and then eventually, as mindfulness is strong enough, you can begin to be aware of the mind itself. The teacher we just talked about, Saida Utejaniya, he starts with contact with the mind. He starts with an awareness of the mind, but um, a lot of other teachers begin with just trying to come through the senses first and then going to be aware of the mind. But there's contact in every moment with your environment. 
through one of your six sense doors. Um, it's almost like this, like a, you can see almost like an, an LED thing of six colors and they'd all be flashing. So right now you're taking in some sight, you're taking in some sound of my voice, you're perfectly taking in some awareness of your body, especially if there's something uncomfortable happening. And you have your own little thoughts and opinions about whether it's making sense or not. And so you're contacting at least four of these doors very rapidly to even make sense of this moment you're in. In that moment of contact, we are wired both sensorily in our body, but also um, with reinforcement in our mind, in our brain even, to find some experiences pleasant. And there's, um, there's chemicals released when you have certain experiences that uh, make experiences more pleasant, and therefore they're more reinforced. Some experiences are unpleasant, and some experiences they're fairly neutral. That happens in every moment. There's a, this is called Vedana, and it's, Vedana is this pleasant, unpleasant feeling tone of every moment, or neutral feeling tone of every moment. In response to that, the, again, we just read that um, passage from the dart, the untrained worldling, so one who is not with strong right view, someone who has avijja, when pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experiences happen, almost uh, reflexively, there begins to be uh, this motion in the mind of craving. So craving comes up, and if you have found yourself in a pleasant experiences, a pleasant experience, there usually is um, an enjoying of it, a leaning into it, trying to prolong it, trying to extract the pleasure and the sense of well-being out of it, trying to um, prolong your contact with it, maybe even establish your contact with it. If it's unpleasant, there's almost immediately some type of distancing and, and pushing back, numbing any way you can... Uh, um, push away your contact with something unpleasant. And if it's neutral, we tend to, if you're, not, um, if you're not trained in it, we tend to kind of numb out and dismiss neutral experiences. We might enjoy them for a moment because they're calm, but then we kind of get bored of them pretty quickly and we're back out trying to seek something pleasant worth attending to or struggling with whatever unpleasant things might be nearby. So... <clears throat> Uh, that's quite common if you're starting with a misunderstanding to come into uh, craving being the response, tanha being the response to whatever vedna is arising. When craving arises, out of that grows the next movement of mind, which is clinging or grasping. A clinging to what has been pleasant the strategy of what gives you pleasure, we cling and try to tighten that up, try to reassure ourselves, try to entrench ourselves into what's pleasant. We try to uh, strengthen ourselves in the pushing away and the rejecting of unpleasant experiences. And we, we try to avoid neutral experiences. You might notice um, if you're feeling a little tired or awkward socially and you walk into a room of people and you meet someone and you don't feel like there's a lot of chemistry, it won't be easy to talk to them, you'll smile and kind of move on. If, there's, if it's neutral, unless you're filled with kindness, unless you have desire to connect, if you're not feeling um, resonant with somebody, 
then you smile, say a few nice things, but there's not a lot of juice to stay with that person, so you might wander on. Again, if, you don't, if you're not um, imbued with beautiful qualities of heart and mind at that moment, around neutral experiences, we tend to kind of have a little contact and then our attention wanders easily. Out of this movement of the mind to try to um, establish or affirm or um, uh, cling to what's pleasant and reject what's unpleasant, then is born this next process of how minds work, is there's this urge to become. And the urge to become grows out of clinging. It grows out of this stiffening of the strategy to how to get more pleasure or um, neutralize, stabilize what's unpleasant. We try to stiffen up and then get control over this. And one of the ways that we get, we think we can gain control over this process of painful things happening and pleasant things not happening as much as we want, is we start to conceive of a self-strategy. And it's more than just, I want more cookies, or I want more sunshine, or I'm not going to talk to my relatives for a while, or I have to get out of this job. Um, it's <clears throat> That's just sort of, you're managing the contact right at the sense door. Maybe I have to get the job begins to be where you start to have a bigger strategy. The process of selfing is a more global attempt to manage uh, what is pleasant and, and what's unpleasant. If I become somebody, then that becoming will give me much more access to, uh, to relaxation, to sense of well-being. If I become somebody who has a very large income, I believe that will give me much more, um, uh, a greater sense of well-being. I see myself on yachts. I see myself eating in great restaurants. So if I can become somebody with a lot of money, all my associations and all my dreams and fantasies are very pleasant. So this self-strategy begins to grow out of trying to manage um, contact with the world. And either you're trying to stabilize it. It's like, I just want to, it's too random. It's too out of control. I just want something that's stable. I want a self. I want a, I want a life What's me or mine, my world of possessions, my world of identity, I'm going to stabilize it because it's too volatile, it's too scary. Or beyond stabilizing it, I want to improve it. I want to kind of take it in a positive direction. Becoming isn't the worst thing, but if it's, uh, if it's grown out of craving and clinging, then there's a distortion built in to how you are going to become and what you're going to become. It's built out of fear of unpleasant things. And it's built out of a type of um, a ceaseless yearning for something more pleasant. And so uh, that type of becoming has grown out of clinging. It's grown out of grasping, which has grown out of craving. Becoming leads, yeah. A positive version of becoming might be something like um, I've gone to Spirit Rock many times. I have some experience. I know that I, I, I cannot control what my experience will be like. But it's generally been positive. 
it's generally been helpful. I, I walk away wiser. I kind of work better in the world. So I don't, it's not a guarantee that that's going to happen. I've had some experiences that didn't give me what I wanted, so I know how to be open-handed. But for the general, I, I believe that coming here is going to be helpful. So you walk in, and it's not born of strong craving. It's not born of clinging. I had better get something good out of this, or I can't stand my life. Please, Spirit Rock, save me from myself. Please, can't you do something about this? That type of, I need to become something different than what I am. Um, if you're setting yourself up, and that's your strategy, and there's a tightness around who you'd rather be, um, one, it's a precarious strategy. It's built on insecure relationship to who you are and all your eggs are in this fantasy of who you might become and if you become that <clears throat> if you don't become it that's immediate frustration you're trying to become and you just can't take birth in this new self but you're trying to so this becoming urge does often lead into uh, the birth of something new the birth of who you are trying to be so out of uh, out of a struggle with life, I start yearning and fantasizing for something different. I, I, um, I conceive of it, and then I act upon that conceiving, and then I end up living into whatever that plan was. So becoming creates a plan of who I want to be, and if I follow that plan, I start to experience the reality of what that plan is. The reality of the plan, I, you know, I... I make the choice to do A or B. If I choose A, then my life kind of unfolds with that choice or B. But either of those choices are desperate based in fear or greed. Chances are uh, that whole strategy is going to be something unsteady. Or it might be temporarily steady, but it might have the view underneath it that I finally arrived. I finally have solved my, my dilemma. I have finally stabilized this world that's so out of control for me. I've done it. And I can dab my brow and say, good job, I have now taken birth into this lifestyle, this house, this relationship, this identity. Here I have arrived. Because we are conditioned beings, that birth you've taken can only last for so long. There are, um, in the cosmology, there are beings that have taken birth into very high realms of these heaven realms and their lifespans are very long and it's all delightful, but they're still conditioned beings. And so eventually their lifespan plays out and they go through a rebirth process. So this process, you don't actually land anywhere fully secure, it's just temporarily secure. If you're willing for it to be temporary, that's already a lot of wisdom. And so you're not thrown when you see that you caught your breath there, it was a good run, that's how things were, but you can feel that things are shifting. If you can't deal with things shifting, then when you come to the aging and dying process that comes with all conditioned experiences, that's disorienting, there's grief, there's anxiety, um, there's fear, uh, and then you're sort of thrown back into the sea of what do I do now? or you actually have to go through the dying process and that dying process is threatening to your underlying yearning to finally be something that doesn't have to experience change or can control the change that happens. And the dying process is very much out of control. It's not up to us. 
Like once we start going through the dying process, it has a, a path of its own that you're on the ride of, but you don't actually make many choices um, about exactly how your body is going to go through its dying process. Okay, let's take a breath. We made it through the first wave. Let's uh, breathe a little bit. If you've left your body to track all that or to avoid all of that, um, let's come back in. Now let's see if, uh, now that we've sort of gone through all 12, what kind of questions come up? Yeah. Well, the first thing for me is that all this makes good sense to me except for one thing. And I, and I have read others who said they've written about this. And that's the birth of that. That's just gone through the patterns in the consciousness. And then we talk about the birth afterwards. And every time somebody explains it, I still scratch my head. It feels like I'm trying to rationalize a mistake in the order. So what is the mistake again? Well, it's, it's birth. You've got, you've got the constructive pattern of consciousness and the It's all part of our lives and yeah. senses and the craving and the wanting. And then after we've gone through all that, then we say birth. Well, in order for you to have done that, I already haven't been born. Right. I know it's not a, an important thing. It's no, it is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, you can see this is one way of looking at the chain reaction. And you can kind of see, like, there's a, there's a rough logic of how one thing can happen to the other out of um, a very strong conviction reaction to one circumstance. You then, with, out of that conviction, like, you, uh, you insult me, I feel hurt, I start ruminating on it, I start saying, I'm going to back at you. And I kind of convince that, and I, I become the guy who's doing that. I'm walking up towards you. That's my process of becoming. And then I look you straight in the eye and I take birth as the one who's delivering this, this plan or this urge, this energy of attack. That's like a little micro example of, you can see some of the, you can see a little logic of this as you're going through it. <clears throat> but this, uh, this chain reaction, it, it has a, um, it always has a, a uh, a previous momentum that has led to this moment and then out of this moment grows a response. And then this previous moment, I mean this present moment, becomes a future moment's past moment. <laughs> Not sure if that made sense, but um, this moment is now the past when I put my hands together to this moment. So it's an ongoing, uh, it's an ongoing continuum of uh, reacting to the world, and out of that, choosing more action. And that choice of action is a, a small version of taking birth uh, time and time again out of the urge of how you're responding to what previously happened. So if, if that, I'm, I'm not sure if I've grasped uh, your well, question. It's always our, uh, they're all, it's just our reality, uh, all the way from constructive patterns to aging. Yeah. <laughs> well, this actually comes up. This comes up in um, one thing to say about this is that there are there are two very different views about Paticca Samuppada, and one is that 
all this happens um, within one's life. And usually with, you could say this even happens within a day. You wake up in a certain mood, that sets you forward of how you go about your day. You have interactions. On certain days you'll be more reactive. And from that you make different choices. You follow through on those choices and that sets you up um, depending on how you framed your choice to further frustrations with the way things are or coming into alignment with the way things are. So birth, and that one is a little bit more metaphorical. There's also the other view is that this is a three life process. In your previous life, you had views and opinions and you organized yourself, you took actions and that was sort of your deep patterning that set you up to take birth in this life, which isn't called birth, it's, uh, it begins at vinyana. So the first two links are from your past lives. That creates consciousness. Consciousness then comes in and they call nama rupa, really is the building of who you are as you have taken birth in this life. So the consciousness and nama rupa are the birthing process into this life. And then how you're responding to this life sets you up to actually take birth in a new life. So that's the three life model in Paticca Samuppada. And there's debates about whether the Buddha intended this to be a map that you can see right here and now. You can see views and opinions that you have right here and now organizing your mind. And that sets you up in how you're encountering your world to be reactive or um, to stay in tune with it. And then therefore birth and death are a little bit more uh, metaphors for what's happening psychologically. So there is this underlying disagreement. I'm not sure again if that um, is in the camp of your question, but uh, in one, um, birth and death are more uh, psychological processes, how you conceive of yourself. I am this way, Um, today is a good day, my words are coming out well, I am a good public speaker. Tomorrow comes, I have a cold. I am not a public speaker. I'm not as good as I thought. That Whoever that guy was that I hoped I was isn't here today, and there's grief around that. So I might say he, you know, a good speaker took birth that day, and he died that day. And I was hoping he wouldn't die. That's a little bit more of a metaphor, the, the birthing and dying process of temporary identities. We take birth here on the land of Spirit Rock, and then eventually things shift and maybe it's a thousand years or 10,000 years or a hundred thousand years, whatever. People stop coming here for meditation and then whatever spirit rock was goes through such a great shift that you can say the original birthing of being here has come to play its full and then it comes through a a dying process. Anyways, that's about much of our idea on that question. Any other questions about this first flyby? We just did a kind of a flyby on this, yeah. Right. Where do you change? Where can you change the outcome of this? Ultimately, if you have 12 dominoes and the last one is suffering and the first one is misunderstanding, if you remove any of the 11 dominoes or the middle 10, I can drop this one and it won't actually cause 
the last one to drop. I can't make a chain reaction if I remove any of them. So ultimately, you can intervene on any one of these. If you, if you improve your understanding, then your mind organizes around that understanding. That organizes the way your conscious awareness takes shape. That organizes how you're interacting with the world. Unpleasant experiences, you don't struggle with them. Neutral experiences, you're not bored with them. Pleasant experiences, you're not craving them. And then that doesn't cause a type of clinging and selfing born because you actually um, started with the right view. So you can intervene at right view, um, or at least uh, in the avijja, which is translated as ignorance. You can intervene there. You can intervene at your patterns. So maybe if I haven't totally shifted my understanding of the world, but I practice a lot of loving kindness, it's actually harder for anger to organize my mind. And more likely I'm going to organize my mind out of loving kindness. And I may not have deeply understood anicca, but because I've developed the sankharic patterns of my mind and overcome patterns of anger, then I'm intervening on this, this, um, these 12 links. So actually you can intervene at any one of them. Bringing mindfulness and consciousness into any one of them uh, affects the whole chain reaction. If you're not afraid of, of the changing of your identities, then the changing of your identities is not a death process. It's just what happens. It's being fluid. So you can, even at the last one, you can intervene and say things change, which actually is one of the changes. If you have that understanding, then you actually affected ignorance at the very beginning. But you can apply that right at the place where you might be afraid of change and you go in to, to relax that identity. I don't have to be the one who gets the award. Somebody else got it. Okay, I can let go there at identity, let go of the selfing strategy. So ultimately you can change any of these. Ultimately, <clears throat> the Buddha would want us to understand the Four Noble Truths, understand right view, which is the topic of this session, so much so that we're actually getting to the root of it. And if you can actually affect this first link, you affect everything downstream of it. And so rather than constantly intervening elsewhere but not touching your, your underlying views, if you can begin to adjust your view, your understanding, then everything um, shifts downstream of that. All the cause and effect uh, reaction changes because you've changed the initial one. So that's ultimately where we're um, guiding ourselves is to actually through mindfulness and seeing the world and understanding. Our understanding is one that matures to where the truth of how things are, things change, things with a birthing process go through an aging process and eventually a dying process. If I can be live in accord with that, then I don't struggle. I don't um, find myself into the, the, second, the realm of the second dart, the realm of this extra suffering, this extra unpleasant layer. What you'll notice is that when the Buddha is talking to people, it's one of the ways you can see who he's talking to in a sutta as you read hundreds of them. If he starts with craving he might be making the assumption that this is where he wants that person to begin seeing the cost and the outcome at craving. 
So he might say, because you're yearning, because of this craving, this wanting, this desire, which everybody feels, this sort of, I, I want what I don't have. I want it, and I'm kind of obsessed with it. Since many people, that's a tangible experience. He can find most people on that level and talk about what happens if that ends up dominating you and you start making your choices dominated by the mind of craving. And so that's, that's, um, that's starting at the midpoint. And then you're intervening at the midpoint. But again, like talking about um, uh, getting blackberries out of your yard. Not, I don't know how many of you have struggled with blackberries. I, I may have asked this before, but I lived in the Northwest for um, uh, a number of years. And they really were just exploding. Uh, they're taking over the creeks where the salmon were spawning. They would take over neighbor. They would take over people's backyards if they went on vacation. And um, we one time I was helping a friend who had bought this house that had been neglected for a long time. And he was overdoing everything, but his backyard was just riddled with these huge vines of blackberries. And the house had been um, kind of a junkyard also. So there was old bicycles and trash and refrigerators and they all had these vines growing all through them and I thought okay this is something I can do I'm visiting him I'm just going to keep cutting it back every day I'm just going to cut these back and I'd cut it out and I'd pull this old bike this old rusty bike out of the bramble and then I could get out a little bit more of it so that's sort of like cutting back the dukkha it's just sort of I'm weeding it I'm weeding it and then I learned if I make a hole and I go in, there's not as much foliage, so you go into it, and then you cut the branch, and this huge thing pulls away. Like rather than like cutting the little bits, and that'll take forever, if I can actually get in a little bit on it and cut, then I can pull these long uh, vines out. And I made such a space that I actually could peer through and see the stalk, like the main blackberry stalk. It's like, oh, if I got that one, and I made the cut there, then everything kind of from within, you just kind of keep cutting it and the whole, the whole bramble patch falls apart. And so penetrating into the 12 links here, if you can get as far into it as you can get and make your cut there, then you're not uh, spending so much energy dealing with the, um, so much of your life force and your time on the planet weeding and, and kind of slowly cutting back the frustrating habits you are going deep into your mind stream and seeing what are these underlying, you know, where's this root go? And the root goes into wrong view. The root goes into, um, coming back to some of these uh, original topics, everything that isn't right view is probably somewhat tinged with wrong view or not a complete view. And so believing that in conditioned experience you can find lasting happiness. If I just got the conditions of my life right, things would be better from there on out. And so I work hard to make the conditions of my life as happy and well as I can, but I can't account for you know, physical illness. I, I got everything covered, but I still have a body that gets ill. So that's not actually a winning strategy. It's a, it's a, it's a worthy one, but it's not fully um, securing to try to find lasting happiness through um, either the right self, becoming the right person, or the right contact with, a beauty, with beauty and pleasure. So, 
We've been at this a while, and again, it can be overwhelming. So um, let's take a break. Let's take a, a five, ten minute break just to kind of stretch and make sure this isn't um, becoming its own confusion because there are too many aspects of it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.